Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Part 2, Middle Distance. Chapter 4, Malta Bound. It's 5.15am on Monday, April the 20th. Although I'm strapped into my Spitfire, with the bag containing my painting things squeezed under my left arm, threatening to jam the throttle lever... I can feel the heaving and shuddering of the ship's engines racing more vigorously than they have ever raced before. 
Our carrier must be moving at full speed so that the Spitfires, whose engines I can hear already roaring from the flight deck above, are able to take off. There goes the first, passing slowly across the space where a panel has been removed in the side of this huge hangar, a tiny aircraft low over the framed strip of dark water, almost invisible in the grey light of dawn. In the black tunnel of girders, stretching into the distance beyond my Spitfire's long nose, pools of electric green light reveal closely packed aircraft, with many pilots still climbing in. Mechanics stand by their allotted positions, others are ducking hurriedly under metal wings and tailplanes. Somewhere behind me, an engine chokes then bursts into life, sending a cloud of blue smoke drifting over my head. More engines start. Strapped tight, I can't look round. Glancing into the mirror above my windscreen, I observe that the Spitfire behind me, with the CO inside, is being wheeled backwards towards a great lift. A pause, then with the propeller turning in a transparent arc, the perspective of his plane changes as it disappears bodily, the lift with it, up into the blackness of the girders. Down comes the lift again, and monkey-faced Scotty, one of our Australians, gives me a wide grin from the cockpit as his plane is dragged into it. Down comes the empty floor again, hungry for more machines and their pilots. Up goes Max. I am signalled to start my engine. It bursts into life. The lift with Max in it pauses in the roof, makes one gigantic swallow, then comes down again empty, this time for me. Mechanics grab my wings. I'm pulled backwards towards the lift. Last glimpse of the hangar as the floor heaves beneath me, propellers turning, people running. A red sack has been thrown onto the floor down there. My God, someone must have walked into a turning propeller. I'm on the deck in white daylight, clouds, sea, flight deck in front, the superstructure, halfway down, right, a white-sweated American mechanic, much closer, wearing goggles, a red skull cap on his head, a red skull cap, I must watch him. With his legs wide apart, he's bending forward like a rugger player, clenching his hands high in the air. I put on the brakes, his hands begin to rotate rapidly, I open the throttle. The engine is roaring, brakes are slipping, a checkered flag falls, release brakes, throttle wide open, gathering speed, tail up, looking over the nose, decks very short, going faster, the overhanging bridge on the superstructure sweeps towards me, pink faces, pink blobs with no features on them, quick, wave goodbye to the Americans, grab the stick again, end of the deck, grey waves, keep a straight stick back, out over the sea, waves nearer, stick further back, at last, she begins to fly, gaining more speed, I now start climbing. I don't suppose any enemy pilot could see the battleship just below on my right, as close as this, and survive. Changing on to long-range tanks, I'm circling away to the left, climbing steadily. The engine does not falter. This is fine. With the ships looking like toys, I take position well to the left of the CO, while the other three Spitfires, which I have to lead, clamber into formation behind me. As we set course towards the east, the sun rises out of the sea, filling the whole of space with light. We've been flying through turquoise and silver space for four hours with the long Mediterranean unwinding below us. For a time after climbing to 10,000 feet, the russet-coloured mountains of Algiers accompanied us, but finally they retreated into the haze. The sun, mounting higher, has been a blinding light in our eyes. I watched its reflection glistening in the ruffled surface of the sea. With nothing else to look at, I watched the strange patterns blown on the seascape by the wind. But then, about an hour ago, a sheet of white cloud extending below us obliterated the ocean. Because it hid some lumps of rock that should have been our first navigational check, we didn't know we were off course. The wind must have blown us a hundred miles from our estimated position, for, as the clouds started to break up, the CO discovered that he was about to steer us along the north coast of German-held Sicily. He made a radio call to Malta for a course to steer, but it must have been an enemy voice, loud and jeering, that answered. Glancing southwards, in which direction we had been ordered to fly, I saw the clouds draw back like a curtain to reveal an island, a brown conical hill floating innocently on the blue water. 
It was Pantelleria, an enemy fighter base. That was a few minutes ago. We had been flying onwards in a southeasterly direction with our fuel levels sinking lower and lower with a thousand miles of sea between us and Egypt and I can believe the stories that pilots flying this route by night have been lured onto enemy aerodromes so that their transport machines and crews have been captured. The clouds have disappeared, empty sea stretches in all directions but undoubtedly the most vivid impression made upon me by this flight has been caused by the metal bottle in my dinghy pack upon which I am sitting. I'm obviously developing a whale of a bruise for no matter how I squirm and wriggle in this tiny cockpit, I can't get comfortable. A disturbance of colour on the horizon is growing steadily nearer. From navigational logic, it's just where I expected it to be. We are changing formation. Each section of four aircraft has now become a tightly packed arrowhead. As the apex of the left-hand arrow, my outstretched elliptical wings are overlapped by other wings for three profile spritfires are sliding downwards beside me. Two islands like two autumn leaves floating on the water grow larger and larger. The steep cliffs of the smaller and nearer, which must be Gozo and Malta lying beyond it, rush towards us. White walls crinkle a hilltop. The small fields are yellow, blue water in front of my propeller, and as we cross the channel between the two islands, I can see the waves breaking on the sunlit rocks ahead. We are now leaping inland over the island of Malta. All balsam aircraft, pancake as quickly as you can. That must be the controller. Damn it. I would like to have looked around our new home, for it is beautiful. We are passing over domes and towers, white blocks of houses huddled into villages, baroque churches all yellow and white against the rim of blue sea in the distance, jigsaw patterns of white walls, a few stunted trees, a craggy valley. Now an aerodrome sweeps beneath our wings. That would be Takali. I beckon my flanking Spitfire still closer. I want to make the people down there feel proud of their reinforcements. We bounce with the speed of our dive as another aerodrome with runways swings into view. This must be Luca, to which we have been detailed, so I give the order. Yellow four break, yellow section break. The pale undersides of my Spitfires leap sideways as I search the air for the landing queue. I'm approaching some steep hills clustered thick with buildings that protrude into the sea. It's a harbour and there's a ship down there, low in the water, smoke coming from it. Peering down on top of its four shortened black masts, I look deep into its splintered hold. Tiny flames are dancing in it, it's blackened with fire. Sweeping back in the direction of the aerodrome, I glimpse a strange red cloud sloping up the sky. Can't stop to wonder what it is because it is difficult to pick out the Spitfires in the landing queue. I can see their shadows flickering up and down over the hills and valleys. I count them as one by one they settle on the runway. My turn next. Reducing speed, I slide back the perspex hood, lower the wheels and finally put down the flaps. The tilted runway rushing forward seems to engulf me. I level out gently and drop onto the careering dust and stones. Leaving the glaring sunlight, it is into pitch darkness that we feel our way down the steep steps, first to the left, then to the right. Here the narrow passage slopes straight down into the solid rock for several fumbling paces towards a single electric light bulb. Still sloping, the passage zigzags again, but it is better lit and refreshingly cool and damp. We pass batteries in niches and hear the whine of a transmitter. Further down, we pass an officer and some airmen working on typewriters. Finally, we enter a level cavern with grimy airmen seated on benches either side of it. An outpost of England, for in the far corner, next to a door marked strictly private, authorised persons only, there is an airman brewing tea. I never expected to undergo our first Malta air raid in a place such as this. Station HQ referred to by the old hands as G-Shelter. I thought we would be flying, yet here we seat ourselves on vacant benches, experiencing the earthquake underground. Trying to balance my alarm at the unusual noises, I am watching the pictures of undressed pin-up girls glued to the rock above the airmen's heads. For, as the rock quivers, so these girls dance for us. The airmen are staring at me, so I stare back at the airmen. 
Every time the cavern gives a convulsive shudder, they grin at our bewilderment. It was airmen like these who welcomed me at the end of my landing run about an hour ago. One leaped up beside my cockpit, shoved a happy sunburnt face close to my helmeted ear and yelled something. I watched the ginger whiskers round the sides of his chin and the silent movement of his cracked lips, but after being wedded to a roaring engine for hours, I couldn't hear what he or the others who had gathered round were saying. I took my time in climbing out and gradually the shrill singing in my ears died down. You've just missed the nine o'clock raid, sir, said one. We had a hundred bombers over here a few minutes ago, added another. I smiled back at them, but I wondered what it would be like to have a hundred bombers overhead when one's own aerodrome is the target. The red cloud leaning up the sky must have been some bomb dust, I should have guessed. The airman opened up the gun panels in the wings of my Spitfire with a bayonet. I was staring with astonishment at the stuff I had been carrying in my aircraft. Spanners, screwdriver, mosquito nets, long cellophane cartons of camel cigarettes and not many bullets. Then a dilapidated bus filled with the other pilots drew up to collect me. We set off with a crash of gears, accelerating along a narrow roadway between high stone walls. The airman driver braked fiercely. We shot off our seats in a tumble of luggage. As he shrugged his shoulders, I saw that the road was blocked by a mountainous heap of rubble. Don't they even know the way round their own aerodrome? I asked myself. But as the bus backed violently in the direction we had come from, I remembered the air raid. We finally arrived at the officer's mess. The sixth officer's mess, we were told. The other five had been flattened one by one. We gathered on the carpeted floor of the single room, the dreaded Hugh and Ken talking with the CO, with Pancho and quiet Cyril standing on the edge of the group. I watched Max and Scotty investigate the rickety furniture, then look out through the glassless windows, but, thirsty after a long flight, we were soon consuming drinks from the angled bar that crossed one corner of the room. We were chatting merrily when the air raid siren screened. My heart seemed to rise up inside me. I looked at the older inhabitants, lounging back in their armchairs, but they went on reading their papers. I was glad when the guide led us out from the porch and up the road. On our left, spilled from crevices between tumbled rectangular blocks of heavy stone, were tiny fragments of crushed glass. They glittered in the rubble like jewels. Our guide gestured toward the heap with the palm of his hand uppermost, as if throwing something away. Doc O'Dowd's sick quarters, he explained. His third sick quarters this week. I heard the murmur of approaching engines, but the CO and the guide continued to lead our party over the potholes. The CO is a big man, very tall, very broad. I'm six foot and I look up at him. He's the kind of man who holds his head high and only looks down with his eyes. Well, there he was, glimpsing up at the Messerschmitt 109s, which were turning in pairs over the aerodrome. Oh, the Battle of Brit all over again, he proclaimed. I wanted to run, but I strode along beside him, a flight lieutenant apparently in no hurry. My heart was beating wildly as I listened to the other pilots, who made taunting remarks about the circling Luftwaffe. At last, and with considerable relief, I saw we were approaching a shelter. But we passed it. We went on past crumbled buildings. I looked at the heavy stone blocks which had crushed black iron bedsteads into wriggling concertina shapes. I looked at unrecognisable wooden structures which had been wrenched into heaps of splinters. As we walked slowly up the hill, more and more 109s arrived in the sky. Feeling that something was about to happen, I put on my tin hat. Oh, Dennis, laughed the CEO. You do look a sight in that. I smiled. I felt most indignant. I kept it on. As we continued, I noticed an airman digging close beside a tiny red flag hammered into the side of the road. I turned to our guide for an explanation. He's digging for an unexploded bomb. Having read of such heroes during the blitzes in England, I stared at this airman by himself, just digging. I was secretly pleased when he smiled back at me, but at that moment, from the top of a flat-roofed structure like a tall concrete garage ahead of us, a white light shot up and a red flag was hoisted. 
The take cover signal, gasped our guide, out of breath as we ran. At the side of the concrete structure was a grave of rubble, and the entrance to G Shelter was at the top of this heap. We entered the narrow doorway, filed down the steps into the dark, and here we are. The door at the end of our cavern opens, and the aerodrome controller leans round it. Sixty bombers are diving on Takali. Why not go up and watch the fun? Back up the steep steps we climb. German planes, which I recognise as Junkers 88 twin-engine bombers, are streaming down the sky in the distance. Black bomb bursts gush back from the ground, huge globules of smoke heaving and bubbling, some of them rolling off long stalks like mushrooms. Layers of them brood grotesquely over the network of white walls, over villages that lie scattered over the scene like dice, monstrous clouds rising higher and higher. It is quickly over. The German planes have disappeared behind the curtain of destruction. The bomb smoke slowly clears, leaving a more flimsy veil of red dust. I can see many black pinpoints, each with tall streams of smoke spurting high into the sky. Our new spitfires burning on the ground, states an experienced irk at my elbow. It's our first evening here, quiet and colourful. We have boarded the same bus as this morning, with its sides splintered by bullets and cannon shells and without glass in its windows. We have looked ahead, down past the driver's back, into the valley below the aerodrome. We have set off with the same crash of gears, over the rubble outside, bombed sick quarters and past the officer's mess. I had hoped to follow our route carefully and thus learn something of the geography of the island, but my attention has been distracted by the fellow sitting next to me. This old hand who is coming along for the ride has been telling me where we are going and who we are likely to meet. We're on our way to Rabat, some town in the island, where the officer commanding the RAF here, Air Vice Marshal Hugh Pugh Lloyd, is going to talk to us pilots who arrived today from the aircraft carrier. My neighbour says that we'll like Hugh Pugh and that we're bound to meet Woody as well. Woody, or Group Captain Woodall, is the senior controller who conducts all the air battles from the Valletta Ops Room. I'm told he's a wizard controller who has psychic powers about what the enemy, little jobs, fighters and big jobs, bombers, are going to do next. Although I'm looking forward to meeting these senior officers, I wish I could have kept track of our route. I'm hopelessly lost. All I know is that we're somewhere in the valley. In the front of our cabin, our driver is wearing a khaki shirt and a round blue airman's hat tipped back onto the nape of his neck. As an organist sways, so sways our driver as he drives forwards and backwards and over from side to side. He is steering our bus through a labyrinth amongst Maltese dwellings. The buildings have stone balustrades fringing their flat roofs and wrought iron balconies outside the upstairs windows overhanging the road. We are now squeezing our way through a narrow opening between bomb-split stonework stacked up each side of us. We have already passed through several places like this, with the sides of the bus being scratched and scraped by the jagged rocks. The pilots behind me have been yelling advice to the driver. He has either taken no notice or looked back over his shoulder with a huge grin. This time the backseat pilots have given up, for, despite the dust drifting in through the windows, they've started to sing. What a bewildering day it's been. There was another air raid this afternoon. Before it started, Max and I, who happened to be in G Shelter, overheard a senior officer complaining that two Spitfires would have to be left on the ground. We looked at each other. After all, we were pilots, so we offered to fly them. We secretly liked the prospect of being the first of our squadron to fly into action here. We were thus to operate as a pair and detailed to aerodrome defence, something to do with protecting the main force of Spitfires as they came into land, a vital job for the Spitfires, short of fuel and ammunition, are very vulnerable as they land, and a special patrol of 109s inevitably arrives to shoot them down. Since we had no chance of asking questions, being ordered to get out to our machines at once, I assumed we should fly round and round the aerodrome attacking any 109s that came near. A flight sergeant called Chiefy told us that we would find one Spitfire in North Sigway Basplen and the other in the pen between E and F. Since we knew nothing of the layout of the aerodrome, we persuaded him to make a sketch map on the back of an envelope. In a battered old Hillman car that was loaned to us, thus we set out.
We went round the aerodrome three times, but we couldn't find those planes. There were hundreds of sandbag or rock constructions called pens, built to protect aircraft, but none of them marked, most of them filled with wreckage, and when we did discover a complete Spitfire, we found completely strange pilots in charge. They had never heard of E or F or North Sigaway blast pen. They told us to F off. We've waited for these bloody airplanes for weeks and weeks, they said, and it's our squadron that's going to fly them. Max and I looked at each other. The men of the main force we were going to protect were not being particularly helpful. Then, by sheer chance, we found one of the Spitfires. Leaving Max and feeling an ignorant fool, but nevertheless anxious to avoid any further wasted time, I drove back to G-Shelter to have more advice from Chiefy. With his hands on his hips, he looked at me scornfully, explained the map in greater detail, assured me that there was no other pilot in charge and that the airman ground crew were waiting for me. I shot round the perimeter track faster than ever. I glimpsed the broken transport plane with its wings drooping in the centre of the aerodrome, raced past many other fascinating wrecks, gave the thumbs-up signal to Max as I passed him and crested the dust-blown hilltop beyond which I had been told that I would find my Spitfire. Safi Valley lay ahead of me, a quiet area of sun-scorched grass in a hollow. On my left, beyond a hillside of stunted trees, up which low walls elbowed their way, there was a village, crowned by a domed Baroque church, all saffron yellow with violet shadows, against the blue sky. It looked deserted, the buildings just stood there like broken teeth. On my right, a craggy landscape rolled away to a distant escarpment of hills, while in the immediate foreground was a deep pit filled to overflowing with the bones of wrecked aircraft. There was something about the quiet valley ahead that made me lift my foot from the accelerator. The short, dry grass stood motionless, while on the descending track in front of the bonnet, little heaps of powdered dust lay undisturbed. It was as if a figure stood in the middle of the track, raised its head slowly and stared at me. There was, of course, nobody there. The track was quite deserted. I drove slowly into the valley. From the main track, narrow paths led across the grass to the sides of the valley, where lines of sandbag pens resembled sentinel tombs. I stared at the blackened heap in each pen as I passed. In one, I recognised the rounded shape of a wheel, Wing tips flanked the melted metal in another. In another, an oval fuselage had vomited the entrails of a bomber. I crept onwards, but there was no one, absolutely no one there. Suddenly, in a pen, tucked into the trees at the bottom of the hillside, I saw my Spitfire. I pulled in towards its lonely shape and stopped. The dust blown up by my car drifted quietly past me. Standing beside the wingtip, I shouted for the airman. No answer. I didn't like shouting in the valley, but it had to be done, so I called loudly three times. Not even an echo. I waited just in case some airmen heard me and were on their way back, but there was no movement in the silence. I looked round for the starter trolley, which they should have brought, but it was nowhere to be seen. I don't believe they had ever been there. There were no footprints in the dust, only my own tracks and the tyre marks stretching out behind my car. Wreckage and emptiness, not even the whisper of the wind or the sound of a bird. A sudden roar of planes, a Spitfire taking off, turned steeply overhead. It was quickly followed by a second, a third and a fourth. I was watching them climb away towards the southwest in line abreast, battle formation, when the sirens wailed. There was another roar, Max starting up his engine. We were to operate as a pair. It would have been mad for him to go into the air alone without Malter experience. Leaping into the car, I accelerated wildly over the hill in pursuit of his taxiing plane. The car went over onto the wheel rims as I swung round in front of his nose, giving the scrub-out signal with my hands. It was a great relief to watch the tornado backwash from his propeller stop abruptly, a relief to greet his familiar figure climbing out. I was suddenly aware of engine noises in the sky. Clouds of bombers were approaching. I experienced a vivid mental picture of high explosive bursting all round the Spitfire, so hopelessly exposed in the open. We had to push it back to its pen. The two of us heaved desperately, but it was too heavy. 
Then I spotted an airman watching us. Come on, man, come and push. But he was sleepy or bewildered or both. At the double, I yelled, putting an edge of command on my voice. But three of us strained at the wings. We only had to go a few yards, but the aeroplane would not move. Now the brakes off, I yelled at Max. As he leaped to the cockpit to check, I was aware of six JU-88s poised in the sky. The brakes were off, but a second glimpse upwards revealed ten more 88s. As we pressed our shoulders at the curved metal, the anti-aircraft defences opened up, buffers of pressure cushioned our ears, and live black spots appeared amongst the oncoming planes. As the barrage spread and smeared, I noticed still more bombers, while the leading machine, with slow inevitability, started to slide down towards us. We bent our backs against the wing in one final exasperating effort, but the Spitfire remained blocked on one wheel. From this bus, lurching its way past Maltese buildings in the secure quiet of the evening, it is strange to piece together the events that followed. I could have won a medal or a severe reprimand for being a damned fool, but much more humiliating was the emotion that triggered off my actions. Where's the nearest shelter, I called. The airman raced away over some rocks behind a broken hangar. Within a few seconds, he was descending into a vertical black hole into the earth. What's this? A well, sir. Get in, then. If you want to, I added as an afterthought. In an instant, the horror of possible entombment had overwhelmed me. The idea of compressed burial deep underground without anyone knowing where we were terrified me. I preferred to take my luck with the high explosive. I even remembered my duty as a flight commander not to leave a Spitfire in the open, although I don't know what good I could have done in the few seconds before the bomb struck. Come out quickly when you see me coming back, I called to the half-swallowed figures as I ran back to the car. I'll bring more men from G-Shelter. The crash of gunfire, the sharp blast of exploding bombs and the reek of smoke are blurred in my memory for, as I plunged the car flat out across the centre of the aerodrome, my attention was riveted upon the race of grass immediately in front of the bonnet and the already familiar building in the distance. About halfway across the totally exposed ground I realised what I was doing. There was a clatter of machine guns just above my head, much louder than the avalanche of bomb clouds that sprang up beside me tossing the car. I crouched over the steering wheel, swerved to miss some newly thrown up rocks and watched G-Shelter drawing nearer and nearer. I skidded to a standstill in front of its entrance and leaped down the shelter steps. But at all times, save petrol, it is precious. Some order that someone had given us hammered in my head and with annoyance I remembered that I'd left the engine of the car running. My muscles ached as I leapt back up the steps to the bombing again. I opened the car door. I turned off the ignition. Holding the ignition keys in my hand, I asked myself if there was any danger of anyone stealing the car. I decided that there wasn't, so quite deliberately I put the keys back. Madman! Get into the shelter! My automaton legs obeyed the strange order inside my head. I found myself half falling, half tumbling, my legs buckling beneath me as I crumpled down the stairs. The blurred rock wall seemed to dance as I burst into the cavern. Everyone was sitting motionless, head turned, mouths open. A thunderclap roar in our ears, white dust burst from the walls, the cavern filled with smoke. We'd been hit. When it was all over, we staggered up into daylight, lumps of rock, large and small, knives of bomb casing, both jagged and curly, and the squashed relics of the adjutant's bicycle lay scattered around. Max reported that the Spitfire had not been hit at all, but I was in trouble. You bloody fool. Why didn't you put the car in the concrete blast pen? The old hands cursed at me. The car had weathered the raid fairly well. Admittedly, the tyres were in shreds, the side wings all twisted up. The windscreen, opaque like milk and flimsy to touch, had great holes in it where pieces of bomb casing had passed through it, through the front seats, embedding themselves in the seats at the back. I must have looked miserably bewildered for the dreaded hue, playing with the ignition switches, started to laugh. Don't worry, old man, he said. The car still works. We had a similar raid later, but now our bus is emerging from the Maltese buildings and swinging sharp left onto the first main road we've seen. 
We accelerate along the main road with new freedom, faster and faster over the tarmac which shines like a mirror and is gorgeously smooth. The air blustering through the large window frame at the front of the bus makes my eyes water. My cheeks, damp with streaming tears, are deliciously cool in the wind. Max, just in front of me, is pressing his heavy body hard up against the rattling wooden frame of the bus with his left arm curled through the side window. His right arm is stretched along the back of the seat. Scotty sits next to him, alert and tensioned, his little short figure bolt upright and bouncing. The rocks plunging past along the side of the road are all blurred, but the fields and rock walls in the middle distance moving past more slowly are relaxing in the reflected light from the sky. It is dusk. Although the landscape is quietly darkening, it is still luminous with colour. The pale walls, flushed with pinks and yellows, are violet in the shadowy parts, while the ground, the grass, or whatever crops are passing, are grey. It's an endless succession of exquisitely varied greys. Blue-grey, green-grey, brown-grey, one after another, even a yellow-grey at times. Only the purple hills ahead of us stand still. The road is beginning to curve round and sweep upwards towards the nearest hill. Our bus begins to labour and lose its momentum. I assume that the small but ancient walled city that is poised high above the road on the steep brink of the hill is our destination. Looking to our right, the hill slope is more gentle, but about half a mile away it has been cut by an artificial cliff with five huge caverns carved into it. The ground this side of the caverns is unnaturally flat. I can see some dispersal pens and a Spitfire's propeller sticking up. This must be Takali Aerodrome, which we flew over this morning. Amongst the wreckage, there's a most exciting ruin swinging along the side of the road towards us, a very tall bombed house that simply refused to collapse. Its outside walls have crumbled, revealing the inside compartments. These compartments, like the inside of a card house, rise upwards for three stories to be capped by a steep pitched roof with a few slates still on. What a subject for a drawing, I exclaimed to the old hand. Yes, the madhouse, he answers. A good symbol of Malta. I'm standing up watching, for as the ruin passes our bus, it seems to rotate like an exhibit of modern sculpture. But my twisting antics seem to be disturbing everyone. Dennis, for God's sake, sit down, says the CO. The bus is struggling up an even steeper gradient between shadowed hundred-foot bastions. Already I have to look steeply upwards to see the city. I glimpse the top of a fine baroque church foreshortening towards the pale sky. In the centre of its warm stone tower there is an open arch, a rich orange curve, voluptuously smooth yet crisply hewn like a young girl's lip. Alas, but a glimpse, for in bottom gear we are jerking our way up a very steep hill enclosed by bastion walls. It is a place of echoes, hammering engine echoes. I can hardly hear what my companion is shouting at the side of my ear. This is Rabat and he's telling me its history. It was called Melita in Roman times. St Paul stayed here after he was shipwrecked on the island. I can hardly believe that this is the actual spot about which a companion of St Paul wrote. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, also others which had diseases in the island came and were healed. This is where Publius lived and where he was converted to Christianity. This is where the earliest founded Christian church of the world was erected over his house, where the Baroque Church of St Paul that I've just glimpsed now stands. This city of Melita was the capital in Roman times. It was the Arab capital when they came here in the 7th or 8th century. The Arabs built these bastion fortifications through which we are climbing and they changed the city's name to Medina. Later it was Cita Notabile when the Spaniards ruled the island, but the capital was moved from here in the early 16th century. The island was given to the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem. The Knights, 
who were themselves besieged in Malta, built Valletta, the harbour that I glimpsed from the air, and this city became Sitavecchia, the old city. Why the RAF called it Rabat, my companion, hasn't the faintest idea. We are now turning a hairpin bend at the very top of the incline. I look back down the roadway. It descends steeply down the gorge and trails across the central valley of the island like a snail track, foreshortening into the distance and glistening among the fields and stone walls, all dark and damp in the late evening mist. The encircling walls close about us. Our bus pushes its way across a crowded marketplace. The driver makes impatient noises on the horn as groups of laughing people move good-naturedly to one side. We cross a narrow bridge, pass under a tall arch into darkness and draw up in the courtyard of a palace. I stand beside the bus. I look up at the massive silhouette of the palace wings that surround us. Proud stone, golden in colour despite its shadowed darkness. A powerful contrast with the cold blue of the evening sky. We enter a hall. This black dampness is not what I expected after glimpsing the pediment curling to a sculptured coat of arms above the door. This palace is enshrouded with history. There was once austere luxury here with Spanish grandees wearing plate ruffs, black armour and rapiers, passing to and fro with wide-skirted ladies, a symphony of red and silver. It is now a vault, with the musty pressure of the walls heavy upon us. With my hand on the cold marble baluster rail, I stand watching the pilots climb past me up the wide flight of stairs. I listen to the echo of their footsteps. I watch their shadows, cast by a single hurricane lamp, trespassing diagonally along the walls and creeping silently over the richly ornamented and painted ceiling. As I follow them, I am obsessed by the weight of this building. I visualise how the gigantic blocks of stone would hurtle down upon us if a bomb fell. Now pushed forward in the stream of men along the landing, committed to a long corridor and a strange building towards an unknown roof, I stare at the panelling on each heavy wooden door that we pass. If I should open one and step forward, would I plunge into a cavernous space already carved by a bomb? We enter a narrow room, filled with pilots chattering together and taking their places for the AOC's talk. Close to the heavy mahogany table in the centre they are seated or standing, but further back against the walls they appear to be raised up. Whatever they have climbed upon is hidden beneath the moving patterns of knees and legs, tilted heads and gesturing arms and hands. The wall opposite is pierced by two deep window recesses backed by closed shutters. There is a pilot already seated in the left-hand recess, but the one opposite me is vacant, a safe place. I am glad I have reached it. Falling masonry would tumble either side of me. Is it quite stupid to imagine a bomb hitting us? Is it selfishly ignominious to yield to this compelling desire for my own safety? Perhaps it is, but the opposite alternative immediately presents itself. Should I flaunt apprehensive warnings of being buried by stone? Should I scorn common sense and take no precautions at all? If I'm going to live through the Malta bombing, I must use my intelligence. But at the same time, if I'm going to do the job I've come here to do, I shall have to keep my imagination in strict control. I smile across the room at other pilots, whom I know by sight on the aircraft carrier. But there are many old hands here as well. I might have met some of them elsewhere in fighter command. Good heavens, there's Peter. I haven't seen Peter for almost six months. I never knew he'd been sent to Malta. He's seen me too. I watch him closely as we both scramble down from our perches to meet in the centre of the room. How strange it is to see him in khaki shorts. I never knew he had such thin legs. His funny sharp nose and his pointed elfin chin thrust forward with determination are just the same. We clasp hands, but alas, I learn all too quickly that there's no chance of operating together, for he flies from Takali. How are the short stories going? I ask him. I'm collecting lots of material, he tells me. And you? I suppose you brought your paints. Yes, I want to draw the madhouse. So you've seen our chateau. You'll have to hurry up then. The Germans are just as intrigued by it too. There's not much left of the Oriental Garden, and another large lump came off the building today. 
What's the history of the place, Peter? Well, that's a long story, but briefly, it was built by an old couple to remind them of their honeymoon spent in the Rhineland. A strange couple who must have travelled far and wide for every room is decorated in a different style. As I listen to Peter's soft voice, I find myself awaiting with excitement the unabridged story of the madhouse, for he is a writer of great promise. Indeed, although only 18 years old when the war started, he was already on the staff of the Times. He is telling me that there are two other pilots from our first squadron here in the room, so with a promise of some beer together after the AOC's talk, I move through the crowd of pilots to find them. Stan Grant was a flight commander in the old days, and now he's a squadron leader. Standing in front of me in his immaculate uniform, yet leaning back away from me with his arms folded, he seems vaguely amused that I've become a flight commander myself. Johnny Plagueis has now joined us, thinner and taller than I remember him, rounded in the shoulder with a peculiar heaviness. With his hands deep in his pockets, he stares sideways at me, a penetrating but unfathomable expression in his pale eyes. I think he expects me to be a killer and resents the fact I'm not. Strange that I taught him the rudiments of combat flying when he first joined the squadron. Now he stands beside me as the skilled Malta pilot, and I am the new boy. I ask them about this morning's raid on Takali, and after an uncomfortable silence that makes me feel that to ask about other people's raids is a breach of island etiquette, I learned that Takali is a shambles, that two good friends of theirs were killed, and that 14 of the new Spitfires were destroyed or damaged. 14 of them! If those figures were true, it means that in this first day, a third of our reinforcements has been wiped out. Sudden silence. All the pilots are standing up. Sit down, gentlemen. It is the AOC pausing in the doorway as everyone settles into their places. My own selected position in the window recess has been taken, so after all, I have to stand in the middle of the room. Air Vice Marshal Lloyd CBMC DFC is now standing behind the table with his arms folded in front of him looking at us. So this is Hugh Pugh, or Huey Pewey, as I've heard him called. Medium height and thick set, he looks a picture of confident strength. There's something fatherly about his grey hair, unique in a room full of young pilots. I find myself experiencing the same emotions of respectful affection that senior officers often arouse in me. I look at his hat lying on the table in front of him. This hat with Air Vice Marshal rank manifested in the double incrustation of gold leaves on its peak really is an intimidating barrier between us. As I stare, Hugh Pugh's hand pushes the hat slowly to one side. He leans over the table, looks down, places his fingertips very lightly on its polished dark surface, looks up again and begins his address. I think, gentlemen, that the Germans have welcomed you in a far more striking manner than I could do myself. I know the Germans. I fought against them in the last war. I'm fighting them again in this. They're the same lot, cowardly and bullies. I can hear a faint rushing whispering sound somewhere in the distance, low down behind the palace, but in the air nevertheless and growing nearer. Everyone is listening, even the AOC. Whatever is it? The sound is like a thousand old-fashioned aeroplanes with strutted wings and crisscrossed bracing wires, all in densely packed formation, diving towards us, all varieties of sound intermingled with a roar, as if from one huge approaching engine. Rushing louder, it is dropping towards the roof like an express train. I know what the noise must be. There's nothing else it could be. But it's all too soon to die. I watch our commander raise his head and follow the track of his hellish din across the ceiling. The first deafening explosion is outside. As if a tight spring that has held us has snapped. We all start forward. Hands push me from behind. Just as suddenly we check ourselves and sway back. The window shutters have burst inwards. And now, as if beyond the bounds of all possibility, there is a second explosion nearer. More bombs coming. Nothing we can do. I resign myself for the final explosion. In this moment, which is stretched out in infinite length, I endeavour to still my racing heart. 
and achieve communion with God. The sweet serenity is so quickly bestowed that my bowed heart swells in gratitude and love. I am as a starving man in a cold stone cell, yet I have been given a banquet to share with everyone here. I bless all my companions as the explosions continue. I watch the flagstones, wide and flat, leaping in pebbled detail on the floor. I am aware of an ancient supporting arch somewhere far below, reaching up towards us from the virgin rock. It is but a quivering sensation of still having life, then silence. As I was saying, continues the AOC, the Germans are bullies and incredibly foolish. The manner in which they are conducting their offensive against the island shows us that. What's the matter with the German offensive anyway? It's damn deficient, only we're on the business end of it. Why don't we disperse? Sixty pilots could be wiped out here by just one bomb. I realise that the AOC prefers absolute calm. This panic just has to be borne and controlled. The AOC is continuing, and I must listen. You are here to shoot down his bombers. To make it easier for you, we're going to hit the Hun where it hurts him most. Ten Wellingtons will arrive here after dark tomorrow evening. They will go out twice or three times every night for the next three months and bomb their fighters on the ground. We will not see any great results at once. The effects will be cumulative. You must remember that Malta's main role is an offensive one to destroy the enemy shipping and to cut his supply lines. You must remember that in Malta we are all one team. Malta is like the famous statue of Achilles in Hyde Park, London. Our bombers, torpedo-carrying planes and submarines are our striking power, like Achilles' sword. Our sword has been blunted, but we will sharpen it. Until then, Achilles must rely on his shield. The anti-aircraft defences and you pilots flying your hurricanes and spitfires are that shield. Malta relies on you. The odds are very great over the island, for the Germans have more than 500 machines in Sicily, and you have considerably less than 50. You must, however, achieve air superiority. Sooner or later, and probably much sooner than you think, we must bring in another convoy. You know what happened to the last one. Only three merchant ships got through. Of these, one was sunk at the entrance to Grand Harbour, and the other two were sunk before they could be unloaded. This must not happen again. Not only are supplies for our war machine critically low, but the remaining stocks of food on the island are very short indeed. Without another convoy, we will starve. Whether or not we achieve this convoy is up to you. One last word. In the future, you will look back on your time spent on Malta, and you will feel proud you were here. Good luck. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash we have ways more of one man's window coming soon